Oregon State University is proud to be a longtime sponsor of Bitch Media and our podcasts. If you've loved listening to Propaganda, you may want to consider continuing these discussions with an online degree in women, gender, and sexuality studies from Oregon State University. Learn more at ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash WGSS. Hi, podcast friends. So it's the middle of summer, so I'm hoping you're listening to this while you're at the beach or in the woods or while you're on a long bike ride that maybe seemed like a good idea when you started, but now you're really sweaty and hungry and dehydrated and really just need a good podcast to get you through those last few terrible miles. Wherever you are, hi. We're taking a break ourselves this July from making new episodes. I've been hosting Propaganda for about two and a half years now, coming out with an astounding two original episodes every month. And in that time, the world of podcasts has changed a ton. People listen to podcasts more now, and they listen to shows differently than they did when we started out. So we're taking July off from making new episodes in order to listen to feedback from all of you, the listeners, and to get ahead on making new awesome episodes of the show. As part of this, we ran a big listener survey. So many of you great people filled it out. So thanks so much for everyone who took the time to tell us your ideas. Several shows that we're making this fall are going to be directly inspired by ideas that you all suggested. And it was cool to hear just your thoughts on how to improve the show. Our next episode is debuting in the first week of August. So just in time for the Olympics, its theme will be sports and capitalism. In the meantime, I know a lot of people rely on the podcast, keeping them company each week. So I put together this best of episode. I dug deep into our archives. Every story on this show was first aired over a year ago. So they should be stories that many of you haven't heard or that you heard a long time ago and have maybe already forgotten about. This show includes four stories. First, an interview with comedian Hari Kondabolu, whose career has really blown up in a good way since we first featured him on the show. Then we're going to revisit an interview that I did with problematic animal rights group PETA. Then hear about sexism and racism in the film industry with highlights from the Tumblr Shit People Say to Women Directors. And finally, I wanted to include a story that speaks profoundly to the recent police violence and to the activism of Black Lives Matter. So we'll hear an essay from writer Tasha Fierce called Sister Soldiers on Black Women, Police Brutality, and the True Meaning of Black Liberation. Stay tuned. When I first talked to comedian and wonderful person Hari Kondabolu back in 2014 for our episode Political Joke, he was just about to come out with his first comedy album called Waiting for 2042. Since then, he's become a national go-to voice for dark, humorous insight on race, inequality, and politics. He now hosts a brand new podcast with comedian W. Kamau Bell called Politically Reactive. It's all of a sudden one of the top 20 podcasts on iTunes, and I'm so glad people are listening to it. So listening back to this interview with Hari, I think it just feels as sweet and resonant now as it did two years ago. Listen in. Something about being in like Seattle or Portland or San Francisco, but especially Seattle, my brain just opens up. I feel a comfort. I feel like 
people are with me so I take risks that maybe I'd be uncomfortable taking in other spaces because I feel like okay you're already you get the 101 of the ideas I'm talking about let me try to advance it and see where else I can go because you're with me on the premise like you you agree there is racism you're not being hung up about it so I can actually talk about what that means on a deeper level versus like having to fight off people groaning can, can you give me an example of either how a joke would change when you're talking to an audience that gets it or a joke that you would tell to an audience that gets it but not to somewhere uh, where you feel like they're not with well, you? you. Know what, well, it's funny. Even off the bat, I have a joke about colonialism that I start the set with, which is a hard joke to begin with. It's just like a, it's um, – do I have to – you want me to do the yeah, joke? Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> it's basically how um, – I travel a lot. Uh, I've had the privilege of traveling internationally, but I don't really like the long lines and bureaucracy of immigration and customs. Apparently, Australia is the worst because Australia is so far from the rest of the planet because they're worried if foreign bodies enter Australia, they'll kill people and destroy the environment, which is a very fair point because if you ask the Aborigines, they would tell you that sometimes foreign bodies enter Australia and kill people and destroy the environment. Uh, for those of you who did know the theme of my set tonight, will be colonialism which is why I will be speaking only in English. It's a very long joke. It takes a long time to go anywhere. <laughs> so it's already a joke that, like, it, for people who have certain expectations, it's like it expands the form for them, right? It's like, oh, my God, this is a joke I've never quite heard. That uh -huh. like, It doesn't sound like a joke I know. It also is about colonialism as a punchline, about Aborigines in Australia. Like, it, there, it's such a difficult pain in the ass joke to tell and to hear that when it goes well I'll know off the bat like alright this is going to be a good show and so, if so it you like you start with that joke to sort of test the water I have been yeah, yeah. Like, and then if it goes really poorly or quite I'm like okay that's probably a sign that other things on my set might have a harder time and I might like reconfigure in my head while it's happening you know, but that's usually like a way for me to test the waters because like people that really like my stuff, the second they hear colonialism, they're psyched that I said the word colonialism. <laughs> that's all it takes. And then I'm like, okay, so we have a bunch of folks who this, you know, they're at the one one. They're good. They're, they're they have the basic stuff covered. I can do what I want. And if if there is a like, huh, that's like okay. So I guess I'll do some lighter jokes up front to warm them up and then get into the stuff I want to talk about. Yeah. Do you still do you still get into that dark to the deeper, darker, more thoughtful stuff though? Like, do you ever find yourself being like, since I, I know you have you have a master's in human rights, yeah. is that correct? And uh, your jokes are always really smart, and they're really always about sort of important issues like colonialism, like race, like inequality. Do you ever just want to like throw in some? dumb stuff I do throw I do throw in dumb stuff when I need to like I have a story about uh, um, going to an erotic bakery in Seattle in, in, in Wallingford and I've actually been to that erotic bakery you know what I'm talking about it's right? kind of a letdown it's a it's a bit of a letdown but, but I don't know I don't know there's it I mean there's I've seen penis breast cakes <laughs> that that seems it what else can you ask for an erotic bakery it actually serves its purpose you know like if it didn't have that it would be a letdown what kind of bakeries if there's not baked goods that are you know, shocking. Well, I don't know if they're shocking. Well, I, it depends on who you are, I guess. If they're I just, I, they, they weren't very tasty. Oh, yeah. I don't know how much they focus on the that the bakery part of it as much as the the, the crude uh, decorations on the cakes. It's a little strange, though. It's just like it's a penis and breast. Where's the body? <laughs> well, the, the point. 
It's just weird. It's just like, just, there's a, it's creepy. <laughs> well, so the point was, you'll tell a, jo- a joke about like that erotic bakery, yeah. but then do you ever, do you find yourself with those I crowds? run out of things like that, mm-hmm. though. That's the thing. Like at a certain, everything, most of the stuff I have is infused with some political, for lack of a better word, like political idea or something I care about. And that that isn't necessarily by design. It's because that's who I am. Like, that's how I, I said it. I've been saying it on stage recently. I'm a killjoy who happens to do comedy. And it's a very, it's a very bizarre feeling where you just... I, I'm connected to all these these ideas and, and I'm constantly thinking about the world and how our actions impact other things. And so my writing is going to have that even if I didn't necessarily want it to. I can't help it. That's just how how I think. So at a certain point, I'm like, I'm going to run out of dumb stuff. I only have so much dumb stuff or stuff about family stories. Like I'm going to run out and, and I need more of those because you need to have range because some of, of performing is survival in addition to like, you know, the greater goal of actually presenting a version of yourself that you want to present and present material that you think is funny and interesting. And for me, challenging and like you, but for survival, you're at a comedy club and people are not expecting this uh, late on a Friday night. Fair enough, they're not expecting it. They're drunk and there's some random dudes talking about colonialism. Yeah, that's a little, that's a little frustrating, I'd imagine. You have to mix in something for that. How do you feel like your performance persona is different than how you actually are? I'm more reasonable as a human off stage. I mean, you're doing an exaggerated version of yourself when you're on stage. So there's a. You know, I I will listen to people <laughs> off stage, and your opinion matters off stage, and um, I'm not going to yell at you off stage necessarily. Necessarily, I'm like somebody who like believes in communication and dialogue, and I don't always succeed, and I, I often fail, but I attempt to, and I find try to find reasonable ways to to do it. You know, but on on stage, that's you know, there's less of that. There's a bit more fire and, and I serve a different role, I think, on stage and uh, for people. And uh, and I like that role. I enjoy who I am on stage. Um, but yeah, that person off stage wouldn't be able to function. You know, there's just, that's just not how you can communicate with other people by by screaming at them and, you know, telling them they're wrong. So... Yeah, so you've done you've done a lot of work on on human rights issues, and when you were living in Seattle, you were working in an immigration rights nonprofit. Yeah, do you feel like what's what's the what's the obligation you feel to include that kind of perspective in your comedy work? Do you feel like I'm on stage, I'm in the spotlight, or is it more just what you do naturally? It's for fun, and there's never a time when you're like, I wish I could take a break from this I mean it's, it's it's. I think it's more of the latter and I think I had to, I do this because I want to make people laugh that's that's my goal and I want to be myself on stage and like I was saying before like who I am is a is a, a political being right I just I can't help but be this way this is how I've developed as a human and I make these connections constantly so when I'm on stage I have to do the same thing and uh you know, I, I, I read about something, I'm going to write about it. You know, I have an interesting conversation with a person about an issue, I'm going to write about it. That's just, that's who I surround myself with and what I surround myself with, and that's how I am. So it's not like, I need to cover this, this, and this today. You know, there is some of that, I suppose, but like, I, it's, it's if it doesn't make people laugh, I'm not going to just talk about it. Mm-hmm. So it, it's driven by comedy and, and, and jokes. Um, I feel like, 
you know, I, I have you know, people sending me messages because of what I talk about. Can you talk about this? Here's, can you write about this? I need you to write something about this. Can you write about this? And it's like, that's not how this works. Mm-hmm. Like, you can't tell me to write about a thing and I can just magically write about a thing. Like, I have to feel... In, it's not even an investment. Like, I, f- I have an investment naturally, I think. I don't know naturally. But I, I have an investment in justice. For whatever reason, I have an investment in justice. But I, you can't just force something to be funny. I don't know how it happens. You just find an, an inroads to an idea and, and, a, and a, a way to get to the laughs and, and you take it there. But like, you know, that doesn't just happen with every story. So, um, yeah, I, I, I don't have an agenda on stage. I, my only agenda is to make people laugh on my terms. That's it. That's an interesting way to say it. And I know you got you were telling me earlier that you got some hate mail from your performance <laughs> in Seattle last night, speaking of laughing on, on telling comedy on your terms and not someone in the audience. You want me to read the hate mail? Yes, I do. It's funny because the, the hate mail, uh, which by the way, I have a folder called fan mail and I put the hate mail and uh, the really positive mail in the same folder because it's just a reminder of like, this person hates me for the right reasons and this person loves me for the right reasons. And it's important to be like I'm the same person in for you know in both these situations but this is almost like my it's, it's almost like a caricature of my hate mail like this is like exactly what somebody who, who would hate me would write <laughs> it's amazing it's like I it almost feels like I did I wake up in the middle of the night and email myself just to remind myself to, to create this character no this is real first of all the person's name is Thad so already I'm like oh that's so fake <laughs> That's so phony. Nobody's named that. Uh, I came to your show at the Neptune last night in Seattle. So right now I'm like, this is good. That's good. It's going to be something nice. I had a great show last night. People were lovely. It was uh, it was one of those magical nights that you like think about when you're doing the shows. You remember the, the night in Seattle and it, it uplifts you. I want to let you know that you have become the cliche that you seem to be trying to avoid. Okay, so initially I'm thinking, all right, this is, again, it's probably somebody who's on my side of things, feels like I, I let them down politically in some way, I have to raise my game, um, you know, I did I did something here, I've, but I'm still not thinking it's going to be somebody who hate, hates my material. You talked a lot about how you want to be a comic rather than an Indian comic. I didn't quite say that. I was just saying that I should. I don't want to be seen as an Indian comic. I'm an, I'm a comic, and this ethnicity, ethnicity is part of what I am. But you know, the, the America is is complicated and diverse, and we're, we should all be seen as part of the whole and not separated out. You know, we're, my story is as valid as any other stories, basically. So, but that, he didn't get that. For reference, please refer to your curry sauce joke. I have a joke about uh, someone uh, at uh, school. Uh, in, uh, in in New York Liberal Arts College in New York, referring to my show with the title Rice Laughs and Curry Sauce. And I talk about how much that upset me just because uh, that's not what I do at all. Right, so that's weird. I don't, I don't even get that headline. Yeah, no, it, it, go, it goes off in this whole thing, like Hurry's coming to spice it up with his own blend oh, of South Asian oh. humor. Ready to laugh till you're spewing curry out of your nose? Like, it's like the worst. <laughs> Um, so I don't know why he's referencing that. It doesn't really make sense in this. Yeah. Instead, you have become just another non-white comic who makes fun of white people. There are plenty of these. Look it up. 
I'm not gonna, no. You are the non-white comic standing on the stage talking about white power. That is accurate. I, I am doing that. Uh, so what he hears, when he hears the word race and white, he's like, oh, it's all the same. It's like going into a restaurant and like, ah, oh, it's all the same. It's always food with you, isn't it? <laughs> always food, restaurants. <laughs> all food is the same. No difference. A more American food? I'm sick of this. American food. <laughs> All the same. Doesn't matter what the region is. Doesn't matter what the flavor is or the taste or not. It's all, it's all just food to me. I am a white male and I was very offended about much of what you said. You are using your race as a crutch to make jokes and it is not creative. You assume that white people, the 49%, what a bullshit number to even try to use to describe me. You don't know me. Okay, that's not, obviously not what I said. I was talking about white people will be the minority. According to census figures, they'll be 49% of the population, which is absurd. And I, I go on to talk about how that's absurd because race is a construct. It's not real. White isn't a thing. Race isn't a thing. So he missed all that. What he heard was, white, you just gave me a number. And then that's it. He 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 missed he he missed the joke. He he missed the joke. Uh, he missed the irony. And then he closes by saying, "You seem very smart and had a good stage presence." That's nice. really sweet. However, it took all my strength to not get up and walk out. Good luck, Jason. So he goes by Jason and Thad, and uh, it's interesting because uh, it took all his strength. So it took all your strength. To hear a different person's perspective. <laughs> Which is a white dude thing to say, isn't it? <laughs> it took all my strength to hear other people enjoy themselves and to, to watch you talk. I hated it so much. And why didn't you walk out? You're weak. You're weak. That's why. You should have if you were strong, you would have walked out. You you were you it wasn't it wasn't strength. You were comfortable in your seat. And with your alcohol and with everybody else, it was easy to say, you're weak, Jason, slash Thad. You should have walked out. I would have walked out. You're a coward. So do you feel bolstered <laughs> by an email like that? I find it humorous. I find it humorous that this fellow missed the whole point. And I find it humorous that, like, he's still there. I, and I also feel like it's changing and he's going to have to catch up and adapt. You know, th there's there's reasons why my shows are as diverse as they are, because everyone is sharing in this idea of like, man, we're all, we're all getting over. Let's laugh about it. <laughs> Let's find a way to deal with it. And sometimes I think about the idea of like ally allyship. I prefer the word teammate. Like, are we, you know what I mean? And that that could include people of color. That includes white folks. That that's it's it's a broad spectrum. Are we on the same team? Are we are we doing this? Are we on board? Because that's really what it comes down to. It's it, that's the us and them. It's are you are we on the same team? Are we not? Are we fighting for a better future? Are we, you know, are we in it together to to get rid of some of the shit that is a relic of our past, or are we holding on to it? That was comedian Hari Kondabolu. You can look up his new podcast, Politically Reactive.
You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. On this episode, we're digging back into our archives to feature some of the most interesting stories we've covered on activism in the past three years. This next piece comes from our episode, Liberal Problems. It's a conversation that I had with a representative of PETA, the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. You probably can't hear it in my voice during this interview, but I was really nervous to call them up. I have a lot of strong feelings about the lack of intersectionality in the animal rights movement, and I didn't want to screw up this interview or ask really softball questions. So, let's go. What better place to start than calling up PETA, the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals? PETA supports ending animal testing, factory farming, and the production of leather and fur, and their campaigns hinge on getting free publicity. Outrage leads to free airtime. As PETA founder Ingrid Newkirk has put it, PETA's policy is that they're media sluts. They routinely use sex to sell their political ideas, including in-person campaigns where women wearing lettuce leaves run around handing out flyers, to video ads where women appear to be having sex with vegetables. Just last week, PETA celebrated the news that Ringling Brothers circuses will phase out using elephants, with a press release headlined, Nearly Naked Painted Beauties Protest Circus. Passerby in Washington, D.C. will get an eyeful on Thursday, the press release reads. A trio of PETA ladies wearing little more than body paint and shackles will converge with signs reading, End Elephant Use and Abuse Now. Ooh la la. I'm all for ending inhumane circus pastimes, but do we really need the titillation of body paint, shackles, and nearly naked ladies to get the point across? That sounds less like political activism I want to identify with, and more like a public reenactment of Fifty Shades of Grey. PETA often goes to unnecessary lengths, in my opinion, to get its name in the news. They most recently inspired widespread ire in 2009 for a fat-shaming billboard in Florida that featured a large woman in a bikini and the slogan, Save the Whales, Lose the Blubber, Go Vegetarian. In 2009, the group compared eating animals to the Holocaust, and in 2005, toured the nation with an exhibition that juxtaposed images of animal abuse and slaughterhouses next to images of African Americans being lynched and enslaved. In news reports at the time, then-president of the NAACP's Connecticut branch, Scott X. Esdale, said, Animal rights is a good cause, but get it out there straight up. Do not exploit us to get your issue out there. PETA frequently issues statements half-apologizing for its most offensive campaigns, like that one, the Holocaust comparison, and the whale one I mentioned. But they use these statements as media opportunities, rather than as sincere moments of reflection on how their campaigns hurt people and their cause. Usually if a group is gleefully offensive for the sake of gaining free publicity, I try to ignore them. I wish that we could all ignore PETA and wait for them to either change or fade into obscurity as a more inclusive animal rights group comes along. But PETA is hard to ignore. They're the largest animal rights group in the United States. In 2003, a New Yorker article dubbed them the most successful radical group in America. Like it or not, PETA is the loudest voice shouting about the issues I care about. They have a big hand in shaping the public image of causes that I support. Some of this is personal. As someone who doesn't eat meat, I feel personally embarrassed by PETA. I think that instead of building support, their campaigns often make vegetarians and vegans look hysterical and ignorant. Instead of closing my eyes and wishing they'd go away, I want to push PETA to be better. I want to push for accountability. I want to hope that they can change. If that's impossible, 
I want at least to let them know how infuriating many people find their campaigns. So that's why I called them up. My name is Lindsay Wright, and I'm PETA's Associate Director of Campaigns. So, Lindsay, PETA's strategy seems pretty clear, that you, you do whatever it takes to get attention for the cause, including relying on offensive comparisons, in my opinion, and sexist ads to get out the message about animal rights. And I think the cliche of all attention is good attention maybe holds true if you're only trying to publicize something like a band or a TV show. But it doesn't work if what you're trying to do is build a positive public image. Okay, what's your question? <laughs> so my question is, what's, what's the rationale behind using advertising that people like me who s- would support the cause find offensive and alienating? Sure. Um, well, the first thing I usually point out is, is kind of what, what underrides what we do. And that's that, you know, we are trying to reach as many people as humanly possible with the animal rights message. And of course, we are up against some, uh, some very big, powerful, wealthy industries and other entities. And unlike our opposition, um, you know, you could look at a number of things, like the Canadian government on the Canadian seal slaughter, uh, McDonald's, the fur industry, Ringling Brothers Circus, etc. You know, we don't have the advertising budgets that they do, frankly. And so we have to rely on getting free advertising through media coverage of our campaigns and demonstrations, and also through, through free placement of ads that we generate in-house. And over the years, experience has taught us that you know, when you have a provocative and con- controversial campaign, that can really make the difference between whether or not um, something will be widely talked about, discussed, or you know, whether it's either even going to be a blip on people's radar um, or if it'll be entirely ignored. We are in a world, uh, kind of a tabloid society not- nowadays, where you have to be really creative um, to get attention from the me- mainstream media. I think that that those sort of wacky and over-the-top campaigns certainly do work to get attention, and that the issues you all work on are important. But what about the what about the cost of that? What about the the image that you know campaigns that compare animal abuse in the past to the Holocaust or slavery set in people's minds about the people who care about animal rights? It, I think it makes people who care about animal rights sort of look like myopic individuals who don't. Um, don't think hard about sexism or the message that they're sending. Yeah, well, that's a that's a good example. Um, that one, for people not familiar with it, we had a campaign, I think a little over 10 years ago, called Holocaust on Your Plate. And it was a display that we toured with, actually internationally, when around the world, even to Poland with it. And it juxtaposed images from the Holocaust of human suffering with modern-day images of animal suffering. And that campaign basically came out of, um, it originated with a quote from Isaac Besheva Singer, who is a Nobel Prize winning uh, Yiddish author. And he had a quote, uh, which kind of inspired the campaign, which said, in relation to all to animals, all people are Nazis. For them, it is an internal Treblinka. So that's kind of the rationale behind it. That's kind of what it grew out of was that quote. And our goal with that campaign was to try to decrease the amount of cruelty in the world 
certainly not to minimize the human suffering that occurred during the Holocaust. Um, it was funded by Jewish philanthropists, um, you know, and it, I think it stirred mixed reactions from people, certainly. Um, our campaigner said that when he erected the display in Warsaw, Poland, um, that's the heart of the ghetto, um, the head of the Jewish Historical Institute in Poland actually came out and told the media in attendance that the display was doing a very good job teaching people lessons from the Holocaust that people can apply in their daily lives. And here in, in the United States, um, if people aren't familiar, the Anti-Defamation League criticized that campaign and said that it uh, was outrageous, offensive, and took chutzpah to new heights, as well as trivializing um, the Holocaust. And so I'm wondering, as, as Peter looks back on campaigns like that one, does it make you reflect and say, look, we're, we're alienating people who should be supporting us. Why, why not take a more inclusive approach to the issue of animal rights and focus on the rights themselves, on, on the issue itself, rather than drawing connections between um, things that people will find both frustrating and personally offensive? Yeah, well, you know, it's like I said, we try to create something, you know, different things that reach out to different people. And I think certainly no one campaign is going to hit home with every person who views it in the same way. You know, we're all just very different and, you know, we manufacture things that are designed to appeal to be to uh, folks with refined tastes, uh, to people with craft tastes. We don't want it to be a club and we don't want animal rights to be something that we only reach out to other people who think like us and, you know, uh, have things speak to them that, that do to us. We, we want to try to reach everybody. And um, that's that's kind of our, our philosophy there. And I, I recognize that, you know, a lot of the, the ads you do that rely on sexist stereotypes and on women wearing lettuce bikinis might reach out to the kinds of crowds that find GoDaddy ads at the Super Bowl really funny. But I think it undermines the cause in general. Like, I wish I could direct people to PETA for information on this issue, but I don't feel like I can. Like, what am I supposed to tell them? Like, P I know PETA's videos are super sexist, but just ignore all the sexist stuff and look what, have to, what they have to say about animals. Well, you know, I don't, I don't agree that the PETA's campaigns are sexist. Um, I'm a feminist myself. You know, I've stood on street corners around the country wearing lettuce bikinis or just pasties and a pair of panties and body paint. And, you know, I do it and I enjoy it. I feel good about it. Uh, no one makes me do that. I'm out there using my body as a form of political expression. And, you know, it's, it's, it's my right to do so. I don't think it is a feminist thing to do to turn to another woman and tell her what she can and can't use her body for. I think what rubs me the wrong way about, let's say, your the current campaign with Ringling Brothers, it uses women's bodies to bring attention to to the issue in a way that I think really relies on sexism. Like the the current press release that's out on the Ringling Brothers says that in Washington D.C., like that passerby will get an eyeful of nearly naked painted beauties protesting the circus. That sounds as sexist to me as any sort of company selling hot dogs saying the same thing. Well, you know, I think it's speaking to the mainstream media in their language. And, you know, it worked. They were all there. And the reason that we started doing opening day demonstrations um, with, you know, some kind of eye-catching visual 
was because for years we were pitching them, trying to get them to come out for our opening night demos. I've been to opening night protests in LA that have 500 people. That's a pretty big deal, and you'd think that the media would come out for that, but they tend not to. Um, so we started doing these these midday sort of demonstrations that had a, a more a stronger visual component for media. Um, so we you know we do use men and women in our campaigns, um, but I will tell you that when I have put out calls for people willing to go naked for PETA campaigns, I usually have more women stepping forward and volunteering, and sometimes that dictates what the visual looks like. I think speaking to the mainstream media in their language means speaking in a in a in a sexist language and relying on on sexist stereotypes and relying on sort of female bodies to attract attention to a cause that's that's unrelated. And I think that as the nation's largest animal rights group, PETA should be a shining example of well-reasoned logic about why being a vegetarian is a good idea, and it should be inclusive. Mm-hmm. I think that that might not get as many YouTube v- views, yeah. but I watch your Super Bowl ads, and I think, ugh, this is not a group I want anything to do with. Hmm. Well, yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. And, you know, honestly, we would just love it if, you know, facts and figures were enough, for example, to draw the media out. But over time, we've seen that's not the case. It seems like there are ways to go about promoting a cause that don't have to rely on offensive stereotypes to to get people to care about it. You know, there are plenty of other groups in the country that work on progressive political causes that don't put naked women in cages to get their message across. Well, you know, that's uh, certainly true, although... Um you know, I don't know how many are as apt a, a comparison as that one may be. I've been a naked woman in a cage from time to time myself, painted like a to look like a tiger to try to draw the media out. Um, you know, and I I'm proud to work at PETA. I've been here about 10 years, and you know, it's it's a thoroughly feminist organization. I know you're gonna probably chuckle at that and think, how could it be true? But you know, we're founded and run by a woman. Um, you know, most of our leadership is female. You know, it's it's a fantastic place to work as a woman. And um, you know, some of us like to get out there and and use our bodies for the cause. And you know, that that may not be for everybody, but. You know, if, if you don't want to do it or aren't comfortable doing it for whatever reason, then you don't need to. One quick follow-up to that interview. In the last two years, I don't think PETA has changed at all, <laughs> but <laughs> there are other groups doing cool intersectional activism around animal rights. A propaganda listener wrote in to recommend one resource, It's www.veganfeministnetwork.com. Check them out if that's your thing. This past year, the systemic discrimination present in the film industry finally got national attention, thanks to the Oscars So White campaign. About a year before that issue landed on mainstream media's radar, we produced a show about Hollywood's missing directors, an examination of the sexism and racism of the film industry. We looked at the film industry really from a labor and discrimination perspective. As part of that show, we read real-life anecdotes shared on the Tumblr, Shit People Say to Women Directors. Check it out. Women who work in the film and TV industry in any capacity, whether as directors or writers or animators or camera operators, submit stories to the blog of real things people have said to them. 
A few weeks ago, A-list director Elizabeth Banks read a couple excerpts from the blog. Um, this is kind of cute. You can't get in this van, honey. I'm waiting for the director. I am the director. <laughs> I think it is, um, I mean, everyone on my set knew I was the director, so I didn't deal with a lot of this. Um, uh, she's good, but I can, I only want to hire someone I can have beers with at the end of the day. Let me just tell you, I'm Irish and I drink whiskey. We got people in the bitch office to read other real-life anonymous stories from the site. Here's the best of shit people say to women directors. I'm a Directors Guild Award director with primetime network TV credits. I've been told, we already hired an African-American, so we're totally covered for diversity this season. Sorry! And we had a female director last season, and it didn't work out, so we aren't hiring any women this year, maybe next year. And... The show has a lot of special effects, and we just can't find any women who have the experience to pull it off. I'm an animator. I was sitting with a male creative director and some other women we work with, and he says loudly to all of them about me, this is the only woman I know who can, should work in 3D animation. Then he looked at me, smiling, as though I take it as a compliment that he had approved of me. I was working on a comedy. I sat and listened to our executive producer rank the actresses on the show in terms of fuckability. One of the staff writers called him out on it, to which he replied, Writer's room, safe space to brainstorm. The show we were working on was for Disney Channel. The actresses were all underage. I'm a colorist. An engineer said to me, upon hearing I still use my maiden name, you're not one of those, are you? I am directing, producing a feature film. I've had some upsetting experiences. Editor number one was a veteran film editor and a very talented man, but would not take one note I gave him on my film, which resulted in editor number two, who, when I confronted him for unprofessional behavior, sent me a slew of disrespectful emails. When I told my producers I wanted to fire him, all three men sat down to talk about his behavior. They told him he had to treat me with respect. It worked. I guess it had to come from a man. I am an aspiring female director currently working towards a degree in film. In one of my English classes, we were assigned a position paper covering a societal issue we felt deserved more attention. For my topic, I wrote about gender inequality in the film industry. In his written feedback, my professor explained that even though my argument was excellent, he said, you should have picked a more important issue. Young producer here. I recently met with a writer-director to decide whether or not to take on his feature. In my collaboration agreement, I stipulated with him that men and women needed to be portrayed equally in the film. He told me he didn't want to work together unless I took that out. I dropped the project, even though it would have supported me for a couple of months because it already had the funding. We have to keep on fighting, no matter how hard it is. All right. We're closing out this best of show with one more powerful story. In January 2015, we put together a show about Black Lives Matter activism around the country. 
That episode was called A Protest Is Not a Riot. It featured an essay by writer Tasha Fierce on the role that Black women have played in protest movements now and throughout American history. In the wake of the killings of Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, and the one-year anniversary of the death of Sandra Bland, Tasha's essay still resonates. This year, we've learned the names of men we should have never had to know. Eric Garner, a 43-year-old man who died in an NYPD chokehold while repeatedly saying, I can't breathe. Michael Brown, an unarmed 18-year-old, shot six times by police officer Darren Wilson. Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old, shot and killed two seconds after police officer Timothy Lohman arrived at a Cleveland, Ohio park in response to a 911 call about a child waving a toy gun. Their names have become synonymous with police brutality against black Americans, and their recent deaths have highlighted the pervasive racism within American law enforcement. A new black liberation movement is in the process of formation, spurred by collective outrage over anti-black police brutality. But what of Ayanna Stanley Jones, Yvette Smith, and Rakia Boyd? Unless you're looking for their names, you won't find their stories. All black women, all under 30, shot and killed by police officers in the past five years within the majority of discourse surrounding police reform. While media attention has focused on the tragic loss of black cisgender men, it seems like we've forgotten that black women are subjected to the same state-sponsored violence. Black women are also on the front lines of Black Lives Matter protests across the country. They're holding it down. They are daughters in spirit of black women fighting in the black liberation and feminist movements of the past, whose contributions have been minimized in the interest of maintaining the patriarchal, white supremacist status quo. The degradation of black women's work and the sexual exploitation of their work dates back to slavery. It's an American tradition at this point. After slavery was outlawed, rape was used as a means of reminding quote-unquote uppity black women of their place, just as lynching was used against black men, though history rarely mentions this legacy of the Jim Crow era. The sexism and racism of larger society was reproduced in black liberation movements, which limited the roles women were allowed to play. While black men dominated leadership roles, black women were expected to remain behind the scenes. When black women activists were made national icons, it was in the stereotypical role ascribed to black womanhood, stoic, long-suffering, motherly figures. Rosa Parks is popularly remembered as a humble, quiet seamstress who spontaneously decided to stand up to her oppressors. In fact, she was a fiery activist who was branch secretary in the Montgomery chapter of the NAACP. Parks, a victim of attempted rape herself, investigated sexual violence targeted at black women as one of her duties as branch secretary. Yet Parks' legacy was sanitized in order to maintain her quote-unquote respectability as far as the attempted rape and to minimize her contributions to the movement that fell outside of her expected social role. Parks was somewhat complicit in the sanitization of her legacy to ensure the story of the civil rights movement and her involvement in it remained consistent. To speak out against it at the time would have distracted from the focus of the movement, racism, and also implicated its leaders in sexist oppression. Her own needs were put aside in favor of the greater good. In both the feminist and black liberation movements of the 1960s and 70s, the need for black women to remain behind the scenes was crucial to courting public favor with white America. In both movements, black women were told they would have to wait until the goals of either movement were reached before their specific needs were addressed. We've come full circle in a way. 
Just as black women were the backbone of the black liberation movements of the 50s and 60s, black women are at the forefront of the actions of resistance in response to the deaths of Mike Brown and Eric Garner. In this modern movement, however, black women are not content to remain invisible. They are demanding that their experiences be given the same consideration as black men's and calling attention to the erasure of those black women, transgender, and queer folks who also die at the hands of the state, who are beaten and raped by police, and whose stories were never used as a catalyst for a movement. Three queer black women, Alicia Garza, Patrice Cullors, and Opal Tometi, created the Black Lives Matter hashtag on Twitter that subsequently evolved into the Black Lives Matter movement. The hashtag was created in response to the 2012 shooting of Trayvon Martin in Florida, and the subsequent acquittal of his killer, George Zimmerman. The mission statement of the Black Lives Matter movement states its dedication to not only reframing the narratives surrounding police violence against black people to include black queer folk, black cisgender and trans women, but also to broadening the conversation around state violence to include all of the ways in which black people are intentionally left powerless at the hands of the state. You might have seen how NBA star LeBron James made headlines when he wore a t-shirt emblazoned with the words, I can't breathe, across the front at a December 2014 New Jersey Nets game, as did other NBA players. That moment in the national spotlight was made possible by two women, Sherelle Brown, the national organizer for Equal Justice USA, along with Karen Perez of Justice League NYC. Since NBA officials did not approve of the t-shirts being worn during warm-ups, Brown and Perez with the help of t-shirt designer Ramin Aminzadeh, organized a smuggling operation to get the shirts into the stadium. Feminista Jones, a black feminist writer and social worker from New York City, has used her writing to call attention not only to violence inflicted by law enforcement officials, but the violence black women experience on a daily basis. She started the popular UOKSIS hashtag on Twitter to raise awareness about street harassment and she organized a national moment of silence a week after the murder of Michael Brown to honor victims of police brutality. Jones has experienced pushback on social media from men, specifically black men, for her feminist views, including accusations of being a CIA plant and puppet of white feminists out to destroy black manhood. As with earlier social movements, black women's contributions to this new liberation movement have been minimized. Black Lives Matter was soon co-opted and distorted without permission from or acknowledgement of its creators. The hacktivist group Anonymous created a day of rage on the same day of the National Moment of Silence organized by Feminista Jones. The stated purpose of the day of rage was basically the same as the National Moment of Silence to honor the memory of those killed by law enforcement, but Anonymous used it to crusade against government in general. Not only did this erase how police violence is racialized, it also introduced a rhetoric of rage that the organizers had intentionally avoided. Jones had been reluctant to center herself as the organizer of hashtag NMOS14 in order to focus on the victims of police brutality, but she used her sizable Twitter following to spread the news of Anonymous hijacking the event. The existence of blogs, social media, and otherwise have allowed for the real-time refutation of the co-option of black women's work, but the point remains black women's contributions continue to be minimized rather than celebrated. This point in history offers us the chance to reframe the narrative on racism in America by acknowledging that black women are not just as endangered by racial imperialism and white supremacy as black men, but are affected by it in specific gendered ways. 
We stand with black men against a world that wants to see them dead, even as they stand aside when that same world comes for us. It's long past time for black women to receive the same support we've provided to others for so long and to shed our perceived role of patient, faithful caretakers and protectors of our men. Only when we fully acknowledge the validity of all black people's experiences, whether cisgender, transgender, queer, or straight, will we be able to visualize what true black liberation means. All right, everyone, that's our show for this week. Remember, we'll be back with brand new episodes in August. This show is really guided by you, the listeners. So if you have ideas for future episodes or any feedback on what you've heard, tell us. You can leave a comment on iTunes or SoundCloud or email me directly. I'm Sarah, with an H, at b-word.org. We're working to make this the best feminist podcast it can be. So send us your good ideas and your critical feedback. Oregon State University is proud to be a longtime sponsor of Bitch Media and our podcasts. If you've loved listening to Propaganda, you may want to consider continuing these discussions with an online degree in women, gender, and sexuality studies from Oregon State University. Learn more at ecampus.oregonstate.edu slash WGSS. Propaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Bitch is an independent, nonprofit feminist media organization. We're entirely funded by our Beehive members, subscribers, and like-minded sponsors. So if you like today's episode of Propaganda, please become a member online at bitchmedia.org today. Let us know you liked the show in your order comments. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>